In this episode, I'm joined by Martin Fox, author, hermeticist, meditation adept, and memory expert. Martin recalls his upbringing in Norwich, England, including his childhood love of martial arts, the dissonance between an intellectual home life and schoolyard bullying, and an intuition for something more in life. Martin shares his first steps in practicing hermeticism according to Franz Barden's methods and offers the fruits of his unbroken daily practice of over 30 years. Martin also reveals elemental personality strategies for facing adversity and how to balance them, how to find one's authentic self amidst society's mixed messages of approval, and how the Renaissance-era memory techniques of Giordano Bruno can be used today as a path to enlightenment. So without further ado, Martin Fawkes. Martin Fawkes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be here. I'm so delighted to be talking with you today, Martin. And I'm sure many people will know you from your prolific output as an author, uh, as a publisher, um, on subjects ranging from meditation to memory, and also uh, from your popular YouTube channel. But I would like to actually start earlier than that with your childhood and your upbringing. Oh, my word. Right. Yeah. I'm curious about that. What was the context of your childhood and upbringing? Okay, so I, I was brought up in Norwich, um, you, which is in, in Norfolk. And um, my, my father had moved down from Scotland for a job, uh, which was at a, there's a, like a food research centre there. And they found a him and my mother, they found a, a lovely little cottage down this sort of road, just sort of off the, the beaten track. And it was very close to a river. So a lot of my childhood was, was interacting with that river, actually. So my, my father, maybe because of his sort of, um, he was brought up on a farm, had a very sort of outdoor attitude. He, he grew everything that we, you know, the vegetables we'd eat, he grew, he ran his own home farm as it were, sort of just from the, the small amount of land he had there. And he encouraged me to be outside a lot. So, you know, that was kind of the natural place for someone to be during the day. And that worked quite well for me. That worked quite well for me. And I tell you, now I'm talking to you now, I've, I don't think I've ever really thought about it, but because, you know, when you're, you're young, you don't sort of think about things so much. I used to swim in that river probably every sort of few days or, or get somehow get in that river, whether it's sort of trying to catch something or cross with something or something uh, all throughout the year. So, yes, it was very, very much like that. And... I spent a lot of my childhood was really full of joy for me. I can really remember a very happy childhood. So I spent uh, a lot of time with, with friends playing in nature, a lot of time just watching things, finding things, exploring. And, and I, of course, very early on, I, I discovered, I, I learned about martial arts. And I thought that was wonderful. That was wonderful to be able to, to take part in. My, my mother took me to a Hapkido class. I must have been you know, five or six. And 
actually when you're when you're that young a martial art class is kind of taught through playing isn't it they kind of they kind of bring you in on that but yes I, I fell in love with martial arts from an early age because of that and I think that's partly sort of where all this love of meditation and the potential of the mind came from now as a as a child I wasn't very engaged with school you know I've got this academic family you know everyone's a scientist of some type in our family but me but I was so full of energy you know so full of uh, excitement and inspiration it was hard for me to keep still you know in in a classroom uh this sort of maybe this wildness <laughs> when I was physically inside it was it, it was it was tough uh, but, you know, my memories also of school, though a bit challenging, there's some challenging, you know, other children and so on, was, it was always fun. Everything was, so I'm, I'm really very lucky to have had a, a good childhood. Now, here's, here's the, the strange thing about that. People say that if you have a great childhood, it's quite hard to be happy as an adult. You know, that actually, because you're comparing, I've found that's not the case. Yeah, I think it's, you know, whatever research that came from. I find a lot of people who've had a hard time, they're still dealing with things, you know. And that's not to say there weren't hard things in my childhood. My father and mother split up when I was seven. And, you know, she, she moved out and everything. It's quite hard to understand when you're seven, sort of intellectually and emotionally. That's the first sort of real big challenge for me in, in life. It's something that people watching this have probably all gone through. That's, there's a, there's a, a, an initiation, you know, when, you, when you're young, learning to kind of deal with that, that change, then deal with change. That's a, that's a theme of life, isn't it? Um, I think the next challenge, there you go. I think we all remember when our, our pets first pass away, don't we? That's kind of training for the future. You don't realise at the time that this is going to happen to people you know. God, I can remember that being a really tough thing. A really tough thing. Uh, you know, when our pet cat died, uh, wow. That's, that's a hard challenge. But throughout this, there's a sort of, there was a thread for me. I was always sure there was something, there was something more to human potential. Now, you know, when you're eight or nine years old, you don't know what a, an, and a hermetic adept or a Buddhist bodhisattva is, you can't put it into words. And I think, but I used to watch things. I didn't get much access to television in my childhood, but when I did, <laughs> I valued it. I used to watch things and I think, yeah, something like that. There's going to be something like that. Uh, there's going to be some technique or some event that's going to reveal the real me. I, I was always waiting for that radioactive spider or for that revelation that, you know, uh, I wasn't, was something more than I 
appeared. Uh, so I, I think that that was the beginning of my my search in life, and maybe maybe people watching us they can relate to that that kind of feeling. That's very interesting. And you mentioned trouble with other children in school. I, I suppose that's bullying or so, is it? Well, yeah. So I don't think I had a particularly bad time of it, but as a character, even to this day, uh, I've got I'm quite sensitive with things. So everything's quite serious to me and everything, maybe, maybe there's a higher level of thinking things out in me. So you can imagine this, you know, going into a, a school. So I had a very strict upbringing, everything in my, my uh, family is very organized. You know, my, my father is a character. What he said was true. So if I said, when is this happening? He said a time that would happen, okay? And he, did, he thought before he spoke. Um, I can only remember my father ever uh, seeming angry just a few times in life when something was dangerous, He's a very controlled individual. So, you know, you go into the school environment and it's not like that. People say things and they're unpredictable and they can, and actually some of the, the way that people bond is through a bit of fun, a bit of banter, a bit of, wow, that was foreign to me as a child. You know, everything was straight speaking and rational and thought out. So yeah, I think there was a little bit of a challenge there for me at school and I think there was a sort of uh, maybe a, a difference. You've got these sort of this intellectual folks family who are, you know, contemplating the breeding uh, patterns of flowers. And uh, at home, there was always amazing things happening. My father would be be stick insects or moths, or he'd be showing experiments that would sh uh, would, would um, burn candles in different colors or there'd be we'd, we'd be looking at the the sun through different uh lenses or there'd be a telescope or there'd always be these kind of exploration of things this was just his nature but i think you know in retrospect some of it may have been for me we'd have uh, solid carbon dioxide you'd sort of bring home that makes smoke or he used to make his own fireworks. I don't think you could do that now. Uh, so I had all this, this, this environment, which is very rich and very beautiful and very and full of admiration for the world. And then I went to this school, which is, you know, it's, some people have said to me that was a very you know, rough school. Well, um, I have some memories that perhaps show that could have been, could have been true. But I think I was quite physical and athletic and probably avoided most of sort of the, the kind of trouble with that. So, yeah, I think there were some challenges there. And I did notice, though, quite early on that other people were performing far better than me. Now, this is uh, I, for, for the amount of work they put in. You know, I wasn't bottom of the class or anything, but I wasn't top. And it took me many years to realise why 
I never made any effort. I, I believed that it would all absorb automatically. So I never ever until my teenage years consciously made an effort to try to pay attention or remember something or study. Yeah, so I think I did quite well on natural ability. I'd never made that leap. It was quite a very an interesting thing. Some people are sort of born like that, aren't they? You remember people at school that were fully engaged, fully on target. Yeah, I think whereas I wasn't there, I had other goals which weren't part of the system, you know? Uh, maybe my, uh, my, my father was a sort of victim of his own success. I was far more inspired by the natural world. I was far more inspired by what was going on out there. I, was, I had other sort of goals. And yeah, I never had a vision of doing, doing a, a job sort of forming. I mean, this is very young. But yeah, as time went on, so that's what kind of brought me into sort of some kind of order, I think, was martial arts. And that was an interesting thing. For, for some people, it might be a musical instrument. For some people, it might be an artistic thing. But martial arts taught me that there were some things that when I first started, I couldn't do in any way at all, that if I practiced, I'd start to get that ability. And it made me realize that I could change who I was as well. Now, my friend and I, we, we kind of met in, you know, we got fast forwarding, you know, I'm, I'm sort of 11, 12. We met when he, he came over from Australia to, to live here. We became the most amazing allies in our martial art practice. And we took everything that people said in martial arts, uh, literally. So there were sets of techniques where they'd say, right, these are knockout blows and you hit here and you hit here. And, then here and we think, wow, okay. So, you know, with, this is our blue belt syllabus, you know, we go and try to get them to work and then go back and say this, this knockout blow here, it's not knocking us out and we can't knock anyone else out. Can you knock me out with it? And you've got all these black belts and everything. You've just taken it, taken it on face value and never really thought like this. And you get, get a kind of answer. They can't say, well, actually, no, we've never really thought, why don't these knockout blows really knock you out? They'd say, well, it's a very precise thing. <laughs> it's manual. And here's the pressure point. It's actually this point. So we actually went to a, an acupuncture, said, right, here's a list. These are from a Korean chart. Is this okay? Do you know these? Yeah, we know these. Could you mark them on our body, please? So they marked all these knockout points on our body because we'd been told you had to get them straight on. Then we got a hammer. So wham, they still didn't work. The only ones that worked actually, the ones on some of the ones on the head, yes, you can knock someone out if you hit someone there very hard, but they're, you know, they're not surprising you that if you hit here or here or here, yeah, those, those work. So we we're in a kind of strange situation where we were pressure testing by genuine naivety and belief what we were being told. I remember a set of meditations, which we did every night, which were certain hand positions. They said they'd give you the strength of seven men. Well, it didn't work out for us. So we'd ask our teacher to say, well, you know, these are very deep things. And then when the grandmaster would come over, we'd ask her this. 
So we kind of were already trying to look for things we could see that would actually work in these spiritual arts. And, and my friend, his name at the time was Joss. Now he, it's Atma. He's a, a Swami. He went into the exploring the, the yogic and Eastern paths. And I found Franz Baden, the, the hermetic teacher. Uh, I say hermetic, but Franz Baden was aiming that universality he wants to see the truth he wants to see what exactly works um it was actually a, a a friend of mine who got me studying these subjects uh there was at our school so we're back uh, now i'm in i'm in sort of uh the uh, senior school now we're sort of doing our a levels one of our friends he taught himself eight a levels in a library when we did our sort of normal number he was a very clever man and still is a very clever man he'd started studying metaphysics and these kind of higher things and got me interested but it was never quite right for me all these kind of golden dawn kind of things so yes I found Franz Baden it's quite strange I had a sort of almost like what I wanted was something based on the elements you know, um, earth, water, air, and fire. I wanted something like that. I wanted some, uh, something where it was just based me and these the, the, the mind and these hidden forces. I just wanted straight. And that, that came in the form of Franz Baden. The moment I, I held that book, it was in a, a copy in Atlantis Books. So there in London. If you haven't been to Atlantis Books and you're watching this video, it's time for a pilgrimage. Absolutely wonderful place. It was... It was the hello again. I knew this path and it knew me. And that book has been, and the other books by Franz Barton have been the greatest gifts of my life. Um, everything I've ever wanted has come true because of those. And it's allowed me to be who I, I want to be in life. So that, that's been the greatest blessing um, we talk about my writing and publishing and things like that, but that's the book that anyone watching this should start with. Before my books, Franz Baden's works, then, then, then you know, do have a look at my, my writing. And I think these books, they're inspired. And that there's, there's a good theme. I found that in life, genuineness is a superpower. And it, this may sound very different to what other people are saying. There's people out there telling you, telling you how to artificially design ways to make money or be popular or appear more confident. When they, all this stuff, it's a, it's a poor shadow of the genuine equivalent. I, I once went to a, a business seminar and there's a guy there at the front of a whiteboard telling people, talk about your business. Be smile when you mention what you do. Make sure you carry cards on you. Make sure you have things with the logo on, you know. Make, make sure you, you spend time thinking about it every day. And I thought, crikey. The people I know who are doing the things they really want to do, You've got to tell them not to talk about it. They, 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 they naturally do accessorize, don't they? They're, you know, they've got a, 
um, a company that makes pet portraits. They've got a they've got their pet portrait on their bag. They've got cards with it. They say, "Oh, is that Poochie? Would you like to have a?" You have to. The enthusiasm bursts out. If you need a man with a stick pointing at a whiteboard telling you to tell people about what you you find what you're doing for for living, you need to be doing something else for a living. With my writing, any time I've ever had a master plan, either from someone, a publisher that said, this needs to be written, it's gonna be amazingly successful, you know, we'll be, we're rolling in cash from this, Martin, you've got to do this. Or when I thought, oh, there's a gap in the market, I've done that. That's never worked. What I found is if, if the muses come and hassle me and say, you must do this, I'm trying to sleep or trying to get on my life and the inspiration is getting to me. If I write that book, that's the one that everyone loves and finds valuable. So, you know, I've learned never to do anything from impure motives. It's better not to do it. Um, uh, I think, yeah, so lots of people tell you when you're young, you know, back to this sort of this kind of age, they'll tell you, how terrible it is to try to be an artist or an actor or something like that. And how you'll have no money, you'll be struggling and living in a boat or something and you're not gonna have anything. But no one tells you how utterly soul destroying it is for someone with a spark of inspiration who wants to paint or someone who's got something to express the world to be working in an accountancy office no matter how much money they've got, no one tells you about that and how hard it is to get out, out of that trap once you're in it. So yeah, genuineness is a superpower, a very important thing. Fascinating. You said when you found the works of Franz Barden, who I'd like to ask you a bit about actually, that it was, you said, I knew the path and the path knew me. Can you say some more about that statement? Yeah, so, um, Sometimes I'd actually written down some of these sort of exercises earlier than that. I believe it or not, you know, so teenage Martin thought, right, I'll design my own path because all this, these drawing things in the air and the Hebrew correspondence, never, I'm not saying there's not value in that, but that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to have direct contact. I want to be able to, if there are things I'm unaware of, I want to be able to see them not speculate about them. I want to achieve a oneness with these uh, hidden forces uh, rather than sort of this trying to terrain them through sort of symbols and codes. So I started to design my own system and I called it elementalism. And some of the exercises are actually too advanced for me at that time. Well, I didn't realize I need to get a lot of basics down. Yeah. And you see this as a tendency because we move towards what's exciting, not what's needed. You know, uh, someone who perhaps needs some bitter herbs to adjust their digestive system and maybe needs some deep breathing to get their oxygen levels up, won't be very excited by those ideas. They'll probably be more excited by some, you know, fad diet or... Some, something sweet and 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 shiny so yes i was kind of a maybe i was remembering or kind of reflecting on these kind of exercises 
from from before somehow. Now, is this sort of like a you know an echo of a previous time, or or is it just a knowing when something's right? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. But what I do know is many people who come to come to settle on the, these teachings, it, it's like coming home in some way for them. When we start out in life, our awareness is quite low. So, you know, the baby is just working the basics out. Is this hand part of me? Yeah, yeah, this is part of me. Is that spoon? No, it's not. I put it back in my hand, throw it away just to check it's not part of me. They've all sort of born long-sighted, so they have to sort of slowly learn to focus. Low awareness in some ways. As time goes on, our awareness becomes a lot more subtle and a lot more distinct. After a while, we know the difference between us and other people, and we start to learn that other people are also self-aware. As we continue to evolve, we learn, we learn about playing. You know, there's different levels of play. You know, first, first form of playing is just that kind of random movement. Later on, you, you can play on your own and you can play with people next to you. Then you can actually play involving people as your awareness increases. We can all think back to when we were young and we didn't know some of the dangers in the world are real. You watch you know, television shows and people are being hurt or things happen. There's sort of monsters and stuff. You don't know the monsters are actually kind of real. As you, as you get older, there are some troublesome people in the world and there's risks and you become more aware. Now this awareness, this development, if you have a look on psychological sort of maps of this, they kind of stop it at adulthood. So you, you, you grow up your awareness and it's a mistake. It's a mistake. What they're saying is the top, is the beginning. And we need to start using methods to keep that going because some of the things we're trying to do in the world, we're not equipped in terms of our awareness. So, uh, you know, humans, we're a bit sort of, you know, we've talked about that child doesn't know the risks are real. Most humans can't make decisions which are beyond their own life. You know, plant a tree they won't ever see grow up. Business decisions, you know, they're, if you're, if you're having to buy, you know, um, paper and it's either recycled and you're not going to be able to make as, as much money as uh, you do if you buy uh, new. Many people make a decision which is based on this lifetime. Uh, incidentally, that, that comparison isn't quite correct. Uh, the recycled paper is often cheaper, but, you know, that kind of thing. We need to take to this next step. We need to keep, keep becoming more aware, keep becoming more thoughtful, keep becoming more controlled. And that, that's, a, that's a challenge as well, because that does mean you need to give up some things. As we continue on our path, our words become more skillful and powerful. So we need to have them more controlled and thought through. As we continue, we can act more skillfully and have a, a more powerful effect on the world. Well, let's use that responsibly. 
Uh, if we can see where people's powers and weaknesses and their development things, let's, let's be kind and guide in the right direction. Let's make a decision based on the best outcomes for everyone, not just us. Um, Hermes Trismegistus says, enlightenment is learning to view the world not from the position of your own body. It's quite an interesting statement there. Just not think of yourself. So for me, Franz Baden and other teachings, you know, there's some wonderful, genuine teachings in, in existence and uh, which are, are not just that tradition. But the genuine path leads to a higher awareness and uh, more mindfulness, prudence and thoughtfulness in life. And I think we need that because in the world at the moment, we're trying to crane decisions and changes and improvements. And a lot of the, um, the people we're trying to get to, to be involved in this aren't really engaged or awake enough to, to see the purpose. They, they, can, they can imitate, they can imitate what we're, we're saying, but they're like that child we're talking about, it doesn't have dangers real, isn't quite aware that other people have feelings as well. And some of these people are big decision makers and powerful people. So that's why, that's why we need to promote the cure uh, with, with things like this. So, Do you think, speaking of that, do you think that's always been the case, that there's been a kind of um, muddling through by, I suppose, luck and guessing or, or whatever, uh, sort of regular adult level awareness? in terms of those that have steered civilizations, countries, and so on and so forth. Do you think it's always been the same as it is now? Or do you think there have been times when those in power actually were had access to the sorts of things, maybe even the sorts of teachings or systems that you're discussing? Ah, yes, so enlightened leaders. Yeah, yeah. so of course, um, Plato um, was looking for a, a leadership where you had uh, these guardians who are enlightened leaders. And what he did is he, he, his idea was that you wouldn't be able to own anything or have any credit for what you did. So that if you were a guardian, you, you had nothing to win. Uh, so you could just be genuine. Yes, I think, I'm, I think we're all a mixed bunch and, um, it's quite interesting, you know, so uh, I've, I know some people who are uh, some of the most wealthy and powerful people um, you could ever meet, you know, people um, who I'm friends with. And they are wonderful, enlightened, thoughtful, positive people. But likewise, and at the top of that spectrum, there are also people who are not so and have used some very um, questionable means to, to get there or to maintain that position, you know, because often these are sort of families who've got sort of power and so on. So I don't judge people by where they are, by their position, but I do watch carefully how they, how they behave towards others and how they interact. The, so I, I, think, I think we have had a mixture to begin with, 
you can achieve a lot in this world um, by forcefulness and by simple strategies if you don't mind uh, hurting others. And most people are trapped in one strategy or two in life. So let's think about these elements, you know, I talked about earth, air, fire, water. A fire kind of approach to life would be one of applying more forcefulness and ambition, maybe aggression, doesn't have to be overtly aggression. And using this sort of energy and this can be really, really um, powerful if you're a businessman and you're willing to work. And this is interesting. I say businessman, it could be a, a businesswoman, but men tend to be more sort of full of um, testosterone and ambition and work longer hours. And in fact, if you look at, if you look at the, the top earners in big business, they tend to be male and they tend to be willing to work for insane numbers of hours that most people would consider ludicrous. So they won't do anything else. So that's, this would be a fire strategy. You just put more energy in, more energy in there and keep hammering away and turn the volume up if it doesn't work and turn the volume up if it doesn't work. But it means you're not a very well-rounded person and you tend to cause trouble and there tends to also be trouble in your life. If you're used to just using fire as an approach, you know, aggression and so on, you end up doing some strange things in circumstances that would involve tenderness or uh, some form of empathy. And actually people watching this have probably seen it. So have you ever seen someone tell someone off for being upset? You know, you can imagine, you know, this stockbroker who's used to saying, you do this, you do that, you do that. And, their daughter goes through a sort of the first breakup. We're talking about some of these tests, you know, and the childhood, probably the next one is the first breakup. And he says, put yourself together. There's plenty more, you know, fish in this. He's aggressive to that person because that's the only gear he's got. Other people, they're stuck in emotional methods. They're trying to convince people, maybe seem to be a little bit of a victim or maybe seem to be a bit more inspiring or beguiling. They use a water strategy for everything. And they're very good at moving around things and getting becoming what isn't, you know, might get the right result. Maybe some people are used to sort of an intellectual calculating method. So they think it through and they come up with plans and they work out the most efficient way. So they're not looking to work hard, they're looking to work smart. Maybe some people worked, used to earth a persistence. They're going to be doggedly, patiently doing this. And any opposition, they'll just ignore. They'll be resolute and solid like a statue in the face of adversity. All these are very good strategies, but if you've only got one or two, it can cause a bit of trouble and it can mean you're not very flexible. Now, why? Why don't people tend to have, be more balanced? Well, it involves overcoming some stuff. Let's imagine, you know, we're talking about childhood and about bullying. Let's imagine my bullying experience, you know, was, was big. You know, I said I had a, quite an easy time of it. Other people didn't. You could imagine how 
when you're six, if you're getting attacked over strange things or you're in a situation where friends keep turning on you, well, you could close down some emotional parts of you. You don't have time to adapt. You don't have time to come up with some good strategies. So you just come up with some ones where you preemptively attack that per people. And you just cut off that. You don't get close to people. There are, you know, 50-year-old people who've still got that strategy going on. And, you know, maybe after a while, if you know them, they'll, they'll calm it down and so on. If you talk to them, if you say, hey, let's change some ways you approach things, you're going straight into their fears and worries, and they know that. So, no, this isn't going to work. You know, they'll, they'll back out of it. So the next level, unfortunately, does involve healing some areas or, or things you just didn't ever learn. Maybe you didn't ever learn to express yourself in an assertive way, which isn't aggressive. Maybe this just wasn't a skill, you know, you ever learned. Or maybe some areas are so injured. It's a bit like people have frozen shoulders. They don't have uh, that calculating approach. Or maybe it worked too well for you so well that you, you just can't believe there's another way of doing things. So the next level involves a bit of work on yourself. That's pretty tricky for some, for some people to even get them engaged on that. And of course, the, I think it's Gerville who said, if men of virtue hold back from gaining power, who will have it? Uh, you can see, actually, some people, the trouble people often are better at working together. They're so united on that kind of goal. Whereas sort of more thoughtful, beautiful, contemplative people tend to tend not to be able to get the, the team, team up with such passion towards things. Uh, and also maybe... You know, maybe they've got some inner fulfillment going on, so they're quite content with, with less. You don't need to be tearing the world up to make objects for them and, you know, putting them on a pedestal and singing songs to make them happy. So, yeah, so I think there's some reasons why perhaps at the top you, you might see some more trouble uh, to, to, to some degree. But let's, let's not judge everyone. <laughs> That's very interesting indeed. I wonder if we might come back to your initial encounter with Franz Barden, mm. the work of Franz Barden, and you began practicing that system. And you've already said that martial arts taught you the lesson that you can actually, through practice, acquire a skill that you didn't have and through that process actually become a different person. And yes. I think that's, that's a lesson that I think characterizes a lot of your uh, activity in life. You're a notoriously diligent practicer and acquirer of skills and trainer in systems and so on. So I think that's really interesting uh, to, to see that theme uh, developing throughout your life. And perhaps we'll, we'll talk about that as we, as we go through some of the systems you've explored. But what was, can you uh, give us a sense of when you first opened up that Franz Barden book and you began to practice things, what were you practicing? What was the experience? What did you yeah. encounter? And what, what, what was that initial experience like? Yeah, so to begin with, uh, I hadn't really done anything through discipline before. 
So everything was done through enthusiasm, you know, martial arts, me and my friend training together. Can I come to yours? Let's do, can you do this? And so on. Yeah, that practice. So it was a bit starty stoppy for the first year. I was just a teenage boy. And Franz Baden asks for you to give two hours a day, really. That's, that's really what it was. So for the first year, I found it, that routine starting, stopping. And in that phase, you come up with all sorts of funny things. You know, your, your mind is looking for excuses to get away from this. It's kind of protecting itself because some of that self-development's about to happen. So you'll say, ah, oh, I don't have the time for this. But yet, you know, you'll, you'll spend hours watching television or hours just sort of playing computer games or whatever rather than doing your meditation that you don't have time for or you'll say to yourself um this is too hard and then you'll switch to this is too easy and then you'll decide you want to do something else uh because you want something fresh and different that's what it is but luckily i've got used to drilling things through martial arts so i managed to stabilize this and this is an important thing you know so um, when people talk about things, often they'll give you a, an, a reason why you should listen. And when it comes to these arts, when it comes to uh, the uh, control of the mind and meditation or uh, techniques for improving your awareness or for transforming yourself, sometimes those arguments are quite strong and quite outlandish. People will say, you know, Either they'll give you lineage by saying, I'm the student of this person, of this person, of this person, of this person, of this person. And once they've established that, then they'll establish a power and greatness from what the early practitioners could do. They'll say, ah, if we go back to Vedic times, they were sort of able to, to you know, levitate and turn base metals into gold. And the idea is the current gives you trust there. Sometimes it's newness, isn't it? Some people will establish and say, oh, this is the latest research and I've been reading this and I'm doing that. So that's the opposite. Instead of saying I'm part of a tradition, you're saying I'm part of this new proven wave of things, this, this new sort of uh, technique of the mind or something. And then the, then you get some, some other ones where the authority is, is, is higher. I'm a channel. Uh, there's a higher being that talks through me, a past life, these kind of things. Or secret knowledge, I know this from somewhere. Um, if you're going to listen to me, it's not because of any of those things. Um, I've put two hours of my life into this since I was, I think, uh, 15. And I'm 45 this year. I have missed a session in that time, uh, in that first year, I had some starty, stoppy things, but I missed a session and one of my family members had a heart attack and I had to skip a session in the afternoon. But so I practiced that much. So that's my, that's my argument by authority. And I've made sure that that practice is diligent and dedicated. So I've never just let myself get complacent or sit there. It's always been, what's the next step? What's the next step? If, I, um, if I've ever found myself slowing or not making progress, I have sought out someone or somebody um, 
who's part of a tradition which is a specialist in that area. And I found that being near people who are better than me at what I'm trying to learn to do, this is a very important thing. I, I found it's quite amazing. And one of my friends gave me a, a like a slack rope, you know, it's like a tight rope, but it's slack. And what we found was if you left someone alone to learn it, it would take them about four to six hours to be able to just walk along it a bit without falling off. But if they saw people, there was some subconscious learning. Your body can see how they're holding their body. You don't know that you're doing this, but you're, you're imitating them subtly. So you, you move it to an hour and a half, two hours. So for me to be able to sit with a Zen practitioner on a mountain and be able to learn from him a certain technique or to be able to go to a, a monastery and learn how that memory method that's been handed down, this is a, a great honor. And this is really important. Now, I believe I've kind of got to the stage now where I can kind of tune into and can kind of see where anything, anywhere I'm going is. But uh, I, I have the humility to know that could change and I might need help from someone, someone else. So back to the, what was it like? So two hours, the first exercise in Franz Baden's system is watching your own mind. This is one, one of the first exercises. There's a whole regime that involves uh, washing away, negativity, uh, body brushing, gymnastics uh, or, or yoga exercises, breathing exercises uh, and meditation exercises. And the first meditation exercise is about watching your own mind and remaining aware. So this is just to give you a kind of vision of the kind of thing people do in our, in our training system. And this is very interesting. Many people see this just as a watchfulness exercise. I'm gonna watch my mind, watch what it does for 10 minutes and see if I can remember all that 10 minutes. Well, you discover a few things very early on. You discover, first of all, that most people can't keep aware for 10 minutes on that. You get caught up in your thoughts, forget you're meant to be watching them. And that people can't remember 10 minutes. And that's not just their thoughts. They can't remember 10 minutes of conversation very well either. So you start to improve these aspects of the mind. It really makes a big change, you know, being more aware of what's going through your mind and more aware of what's happened. Being more, this is a big, big thing transformation then you start to realize there's a sort of therapeutic aspect you're probably aware that most early forms of psychotherapy and talking therapy involve getting it all out you know they someone gets you to lie down on a couch and says you know tell me what you're thinking uh, you're doing this for yourself in day-to-day -day life you and I are always getting rid of un, you know, obtrusive thoughts. We're trying to focus on what we're talking about here. And um, right now, if you start thinking about what your next meal is or something, like, you're saying, leave me alone. You know, you just be reminded to focus. If you sit there and say, okay, mind, I'm here and I'm gonna listen to anything you say. There might be some funny things you've been trying not to think about since you were young. There might be things you're denying about life. So to begin with, bro, there's, there's a lot that comes out. 
And you start to realize some lovely things from this. You know how if you ignore people, they start to shout a bit. Well, or start to sort of act out. A lot of the things that you thought were trouble in you aren't. They just go away if you listen to them because they're trying to do something. So if you're suffering from anxiety, it might be, it might be that your mind's trying to warn you about something. And when it hears that you're listening, it knows that you're paying attention. It goes, oh, okay, right. So you are aware of that. Sorry, I, I was trying to get your attention. And it, it goes away. Or maybe there's a plan you've been working on and it's got a bit confused. Maybe um, all your life you've, you've wanted to be popular, but that was a bit tricky, didn't work out for you. So you're starting to settle for important. And actually what you really want is friends. What you really want is to be able to walk in a room of people and them say, hello, it's lovely to see you. And let's just, let's just talk and look at the stars. And I bought something nice to drink and I just love being near you. That's what you really want. But many years later, you're the, you're the head of a legal firm and everyone's scared of you and you're important. But you really, you really think the next, the cure is going to be something higher, but that's not the truth. The truth is you want to be, when we're back playing in, in the river with your friends as you, when you're a child or something. So that's where the kind of things you start to realize in this, in this meditation. So that's the beginning. That's just the beginning. And in Barbara's system, you diarize everything. So when you have these kind of thoughts, you, you make sure they're there. Here's a top tip for anyone doing this. You know, I've got diaries going back to my teenage years. Do something to mark big experiences. Because if you have a dream in your 40s, you think, I've had this dream three times before. How are you going to find that? You go through, think, oh, so it wasn't in my 20s. It must have been earlier. You <laughs> just read, read a diary for every year of your 20s. Right, okay. Oh, it was when I was 19. Yes, okay. I got that wrong. Do something to mark, you know, put special dream, dot, special insight, so you remind yourself. These exercises are a great joy and should be approached as thus. It's where you sort yourself out. It's so much time you spend in life sorting other people out, aren't they? Sorting other things. This is a time where you get to sort yourself out. You're, we've got a limited time here. Let's, let's look after this body. Let's evolve this mind. Let's have the best effect. Let's be who we really want to be. And don't let anything take that away from you. No, no set of ideas or creeds, no one close to you that asks this of you in order to be respected or loved, no amount of money, nothing, because you, you can't get that back. So to being your authentic self is not available for purchase or rent. And that's why these, these exercises are, are so important. That's very interesting. You're talking there about being your authentic self. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it's one thing to make that decision if the decision is clear, but it's another thing if one doesn't really even know who one's authentic self is. How do you get in touch with that current of authenticity in oneself? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a few things. Um, first of all, spending time away from other external influences does actually show the truth. That's actually quite interesting. So actually I do try to spend a week every year just you. Then you've got to reset. Yeah. Uh, of course, I, I get quite a lot of time on my own in day-to-day life. Um, but that reset where you actually get to see that, that the truth there. Look, be, look at what you genuinely find yourself inspired, intrigued, and enthusiastic about. Be really cautious, because in our society at the moment, we've got a lot of mechanisms of approval that can confuse this. So let's imagine um, you do something uh, exciting and extravagant, and you post that on your social media, everyone jumps around and is full of joy about this. There's an approval that comes back. If you didn't do that, if you take away other human interaction, what's the, what's the truth about that? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't, that genuine respect is, shouldn't be part of your goals, but just be a little bit cautious. I've seen people uh, who moved in the direction of what's popular or financially rewarding far too easy, and it catches you out, can catch you out. So follow uh, your, your genuine inspiration. Uh, let, let those muses advise you. Uh, and even if it doesn't seem as important as what other people are saying to you. Yeah? Uh, even if, you, if, you, if you're fascinated you know, by, by something, if it's, if it's there, have a, have a look there. And often there's some kindness in there, often you'll find that hidden in your root, hidden in that, that interest, whether you're interested in um, you know, crochet or pottery or something, you're wanting to serve and help in some way, you'll find that, that spark. And so follow, follow that, that purpose and be cautious of influence from outside. Don't listen to society, it doesn't know what it wants from you doesn't know at all and gives you crazy mixed signals, uh, especially in our society if you're, you're female. It's got, you know, you're, you are not in a situation where you can, you can actually gain approval. Yeah, so if, you are, if you're at home and you, are, you look after children and so on, you're going to get approval and disdain in equal measure. If you say, right, that's it, I'm going to go out and I'm going to work and do a business, you're going to get disdain and <laughs> approval in equal measure. It's very confusing. Um, where we want, uh, yeah, well, it's, you know, men have our own confusions as well. You and I have been told since we were young at, at the same time that we should be loyal, faithful, honorable men, never cheat on a woman. 
They were also told that our status on a man, as a man and our position in society is directly connected with how many women we managed to, uh, to have. Those are some two very confusing, conflicting values to sort of tell us. Uh, which, which one's true there? Are we, are, are we meant to be um, good, loyal men? Or are we meant to, are we meant to, to be uh, these sort of dominant and powerful sort of, uh, yeah, what, what, what are we wanting from us? And, you know, there's these double standards are all across our society, uh, which, and it's, it's very confusing and controlling. One of my friends, he's a fabulous man, he, um, he chose to have a very simple job, low effort, low reward, so he could make fabulous artworks in his spare time and be a dad. He was the best father you could imagine, never too tired to play and never too busy either. You know, he, he really lived a retirement lifestyle. When he died, people were standing around his grave and I was surprised to hear them say, it's a pity, you know, and they mentioned his name, didn't ever live up to his full potential. What? He produced the most amazing works of art you could ever imagine. These are like unbelievable. What a great dad he was and that garden he had. What, what, what potential are you talking about? They just meant money. They just meant money. Now I'm not saying money isn't nice or important. You know, it's really easy to say, oh, don't worry about money when you're okay financially. I'm just saying, let's not let it control you too much in life. Yeah, let's, let's, not, let, let's not put that over some of these other genuine expressions as well. And the same with status and approval. Incidentally, though, all these things come to you if you do follow that genuine path. You can't hide it. Yeah. And we're back to what we started off with, you know, saying about a man with a board. If you meet a potter who is a master of their art, you know, imagine if she's standing behind her stall and those pots have been produced, you know, they've, she's been practicing for, you know, hundred, doing two hours a day pottery and they are outstanding. When you walk up, they just, they say hello. That's it. They don't need, you don't need to sell the pots. You don't need to say, Good to meet you. I am the most amazing potter you'll ever meet. I've gone through an apprenticeship with this great Japanese master. You know, I'm the leading, this is my pottery award and everything. The pots are good enough that everyone goes wow and buys them. Uh, you can't hide that. And in fact, rewards and success and status and attention come their way naturally. So the genuine method in the end beats all cheating or lying or boastfulness or superficial uh, attempts. It actually does do that. It's just sort of a bit slower at the beginning of the, the bell curve, you know, or the, instead of being sort of like this, it's a bit <laughs> like that. And then you, you can go to the top and, um, uh, but make sure that you, you keep Keep that humility and and those values, you know.
um, when you're there. It's, uh, I think that's the important thing. When, you, when, you've, when the blessings come, because it's inside, you know, change yourself, the world. There's a big reflection in the world. When that happens, make sure you, you do good with it. Uh, remember who you are, yeah, because that can be corrupting too. Very interesting indeed. So I'm wondering what happens next in, in your development in terms of Franz Barden's system, your, your, your personal development. You start off, with, you've described these exercises that yeah. share, I think, qualities uh, with mindfulness meditation or perhaps concentration mm -hmm. meditations and psychotherapy. You, you reference those sorts of things in, in explaining those initial exercises of Franz Barden. More, more presence for those 10 minutes, yeah. more retention of memory. Um, and also beginning to see what's in the mind and see mm. what's going on. So, and that come, that producing a sort of, um, you know, insight as well as a certain kind of tranquility or stability. Yes. So, well, but it gets yes, quite esoteric, doesn't it? Yes. So, and then that's really one of the reasons it's, it's you know, he, he wrote three books and the, this is all a, a hermetic path. So, in this kind of interviewing and, and you may, may notice it's very rare I'll talk about these kind of things you know even on my channel and so on I'm very cautious about this kind of discussion this is for sort of a teacher student kind of thing but the I, I you don't need to have a sort of a belief in the sort of higher forces or in anything outside the psychological system to, to, to follow this path you I think you'll be surprised as you go along uh, and it's it's a systematic. There are ten steps in this first book, Initiation to Metics, and then there's the next two books, and this is get as you say, get far more esoteric, far more uh, spiritual as as you you go along. And you know, this isn't for everyone. This is a sort of a, a calling for for many of us to sort of practice these these kind of things. But it's also important to let you know that, you know, I'm interested in all areas. So I'm interested in memory techniques. I think, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before the interview. Um, there you go. We, we were mentioning that top tip for interviews, don't talk about everything exciting before it. Otherwise, the interview doesn't have the energy. Top tip for writing, don't tell people about your book because every time you're talking out, your, your mind says, ah, oh, okay, I've got it out. Yeah, keep it in, keep it in and get it on, on the paper. With memory, uh, you know, so I'm interested in, in normal things as much as I am higher things, because for me, it's all kind of become one. So for me, every action is a sort of, has got a, a higher aspect to it every word said has a power um every object is a talisman every sentence is an incantation for a lot a lot of people they they say as above so below or they say um that they believe everything is one they're looking for oneness but then they decide that in that some of it is more important than others. So this, these higher forces or higher consciousness or um, these kind of things, they're, they're the real stuff. This is more of an illusion to be ignored. 
I've come to believe that it is all one and all linked and you can't, you can't do that. Everything has a power. Everything has a strength. Everything is real. Everything's real. The hermetic path tells us everything is formed of pure consciousness. If this is just a more physical version of what we can imagine in our minds, that does mean that it, it's all important. Your, your house and how it's laid out, what objects you're willing to own, you know, what you to have. So for example, I know some people, they'll have books on black magic and uh, items which are related to this. It's not their path. They wouldn't dream of such a thing. For me, that's, that's not something I am going to be the custodian of. Um, this isn't, I'm not having this kind of thing. And everything is, is one. So your house, your mind, your clothes, your words, your posture, this is all part of the same, the same thing. This isn't, they're not separate closed systems. Uh, people sometimes create a, the opposite. They say, this is real and all this stuff of the dreams and imagination, that's not true. They get confused either way. Uh, what they say on the internet uh, isn't real because it's just a bit of fun and so on. But it's these are real people they're treating. So this kind of unified view of things. So I'm very excited by it you know, on all levels. So if you can, if you tell me a way to remember someone's name or to make sure I don't lose my keys or make sure I remember that or keep to a new habit or something. This is as important to me as if you were to tell me this is how you can um, uh, visit a higher place or, or talk to a, uh, an angel or, you know, these kind of uh, what we'd see as being uh, more spiritual things uh, or achieve a higher state of mind. The highest state of mind is here now between you and me as we're speaking now. This is our chance to be enlightened now. It's not in the future. Uh, this is the only opportunity we've got. So if I can fully engage with good intentions and pure focus and skillfulness with my words, uh, then in this moment I, I can... I can be enlightened. And if you listen to the same kind of qualities, this uh, presence, this is, this is the, the importance. So uh, every word, thought and action, let's, 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 let's pay attention to that as much as we do other things. Very interesting indeed. So I won't press you any further then um, on the details of your hermetic path and what it is, for example, that led you to meet Hermetic and Rosicrucian masters in Bohemia and seek out all these sorts of people. You know, actually, even if I was to press you, which I might on another occasion, I don't think we have time today. So I must petition you for a sequel, Martin. Yes, um, absolutely. So yes, if you're yep. watching this uh, or listening to this, uh, depending on what, what uh, uh, platform you're on, and you'd like to hear more, and maybe we could, maybe the next one should be meetings with extraordinary people. We can go through the masters in Japan and in America and Bohemia 
in Sri Lanka, oh, these, these teachers, maybe we should go through the most influential, yeah. wonderful people and celebrate them. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, you read my mind. So that's uh, exactly what I would hope for in, in the sequel as, as we're talking now. So perhaps I'll ask you one last question or one last sort of, uh, topic here. You know, we were talking just before we started recording, hinting at Giordano uh, Bruno's mm. uh, system of memory, Renaissance memory systems. You've written a lot about the art of memory. It's one of your specialisms. Your book, for example, um, The Hermetic Art of Memory mm. uh, is an example of that. And you've demonstrated memory feats of various kinds on your YouTube channel. It's, an, it's an, as, you've, as you were just saying, another one of your great interests. And... Uh, well, you told me that people said that Bruno's system doesn't work. It doesn't work at all, um, but you have proved that wrong. So could you say a little bit about who Bruno was, what mm. his system is, why people have always said it doesn't work, and what you did to ex oh, yes. explore that? So yes, Giordano Bruno um, was a, a, a Renaissance practitioner of the hermetic art of memory. Bruno himself uh, was originally a Dominican monk. And uh, he, uh, he'd learned memory through that kind of Christian training. But even when he was young, he got in trouble. He was reading books he shouldn't do. Yeah. And indeed, a lot of Bruno's life was him trying to say things in his works that would get him in trouble and trying to, to hide them carefully. So he left the Dominican order and he, he toured through Europe. Um, he, he actually uh, met Queen Elizabeth I and some of the um, uh, great the practitioners around here probably had some interaction um, with him. And Bruno is known for... Um, he liked, liked to create memory systems, but they're, they're not memory in the sense of just to recall. They're to lead to higher states of meditation that he called contraction. Uh, it's contraction is samadhi, you know, or, or satori to Bruno. Now, the most famous one is Bruno's memory wheels, which are letters in a wheel that you'd combine. He got them from Raymond Lull. And yes, almost every expert, in fact, I'm about to publish a book where someone says it again, um, says that um, these aren't usable. You can't actually do that. It's, it's, it's too hard. It's impossible. Because Bruno uses it both for memory of letters. Um, so he, he, gives, he always gives a mundane reason for memory technique, which is part of his trying not to, to, get, to get persecuted, which, you know, in the end it failed. Bruno was actually burnt at the stake as a heretic in the end. Now, Bruno's memory wheels are based on a, their form of meditation, a contemplation on letters. And what he does is he associates a philosophical concept with each one of the letters. And there are, there are two wheels of them. Now, for anyone who's watching this who understands Bardner's teachings or understands Kabbalah, this is actually what it is. It's, it's a Kabbalistic meditation on letters and then combining those letters together. And yes, it is very hard to memorize, you know, this whole sort of alphabet and each one is a memory palace in its own. You know, the letter H is the Aristotelian principles of the um, original causes and things, things like that, or, 
um, you know, uh, he has some Greek and uh, Hebrew letters. They're quite abstract concepts. But I was convinced this is doable. It just required a lot more practice than people would normally do. So applying the same discipline we're talking about, an hour a night, month in, month out, testing myself, and it was on the edge of my ability, I did manage to, to memorize and turn Bruno's wheels, where you combine the letters in contemplation as a form of sort of achieving this kind of oneness. It was, it took seven and a half hours, the whole meditation, which we'd think was crazy, but of course a Dominican monk like Bruno would be used to these kind of, these feats. And uh, yes, if you want to have a look, um, that was on the, uh, I actually performed these memory wheels on the Unknown Philosophers podcast. Oh, it was, imagine that you've got 500 people watching you and they've all got the copy of the book so they can have a look and see if you get it right. And you're saying, yes, I have memorized the wheel. I will perform it now. And people call out the letters. Oh, it was, it was a tough performance. Um, and it took a lot of practice to lead, lead up to it. But yes, these, these are doable. And there's a lot of this wisdom, this wisdom in the Western tradition, which people have forgotten about. And it's part of my mission to sort of, to bring that back. It's something I, I can report about when we, we do our sequel. Mm, that would be very interesting indeed. You mentioned to me also before that these, and you've said it here, that Renaissance methods, memory methods that lead to enlightenment or towards mm. achieving enlightenment. Can you say something? I know we're now coming to the end of our time. Is it possible in, in a brief amount of time to say something about, about how that works or how that functions? Yes. So um, the, the, the modus operandi, the way they used to meditate, and they even used a meditatio or meditatio mnemonica, was I by imagination. And the reason why it's memory is to do with recollection is what allows you to sort of achieve that oneness. So let's imagine um, a yogic practitioner wanted to achieve oneness with the, uh, the original idea of love. They wanted to meditate on love. To do this, they would probably modernly either use a mantra and just repeat some kind of mantra that's connected with that or imagine an, Im an image or a gesture or all three, a, a mantra, a mudra, a mandala. Or they may just think about it very, you know, contemplate it, really explore it, uh, think about it. And they would achieve a kind of oneness through this that they'd call uh, the samadhi. The Renaissance practitioner would do the same, but through memory. So let's imagine them, they might visualize an, an angel. I think it would be Joffia, an angel that represents uh, love. And they would memorize information. What does, the, uh, the, what does her clothing mean? What's she holding in her hand? They'd have a symbol, symbolic quality of each uh, one of the feathers on her wings. They'd be, they have symbolism between everything about her body. Uh, they'd have poems and connected with each one. So this memory, and if you really try to remember, your focus is so strong that they'd achieve this oneness. It's kind of an energetic connection. So that's the method that was mostly used in the, the Renaissance. They also used to like to puzzle things out. Sometimes they'd have a picture or a riddle that was a mystery 
a bit like a, a koan or actually in, in yoga, there were sort of questions to meditate on. So the techniques were, were you know, comparable. Incidentally, these, these memory image techniques, they do exist in India as well. You do get people, you know, to imagine this, the figure of Green Tara or you imagine uh, Avalokitesava or, or something, you're going to be visualizing someone with and going through this as an image. This is also in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. But yes, they, they, that's their, their main technique. But also they, the creation of a memory palace, an actual building to walk around in your imagination, full of objects with symbolic power and uh, emblems that would change your consciousness by imprinting them in your mind. There was a common belief at the time, anything you remembered, you would become. It would change who you are, like putting in a new program or new way of being. That's so interesting. And um, I can't wait for the sequel to this episode. Uh, Martin, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.